Good morning and grace and peace to you. Indeed, it is a love story, isn't it? That he uh, came because he loved us. And we are to return that love. First commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. As we go deeper into the word and we draw closer to him in life, we understand that he is everything. We would not be here without him, even in this body. And certainly we could not have any hope for life afterwards except for him and his cross. He has given us every good thing. We are rich. Which, wow, what a segue. That was good, Jim, leading that song. That great song. Are you rich? Leads us right into our lesson today. James 1. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. And his flower falls off. And the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. What a terrible and disastrous thing it is to measure a person by how much money they make or how much money they have. What a terrible and disastrous thing it is to measure yourself by how much money you have or how much money you make. This is a view of people who are short-sighted and worldly-minded and have no view of spiritual things nor of the next life. Neglects the character of the person, the spiritual nature of each one of us, the skills and intelligence of every person, and even the chance aspects of life. If we look through Scripture, we find for God, for God, money is never the measure of any person. Never. Now what you do with the money he has given you matters much. But it is never the measure of the person. We asked the question today, and I'm not going to answer, but what is the true measure of a person? That is an important question. And it kind of leads us into our thoughts about, are you rich? In James 2, 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? God has always had a place in his heart for the poor, the oppressed, the orphan and the widow, and the stranger. You can read that from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament, 
Several of the commandments given to the Hebrews had to do with taking care of those who were underprivileged, if you will, those who were in distress. So we asked a question this morning, are you rich? What kind of riches do you have? How do you measure yourself? Let's take a look at money for a minute. 1 Timothy 6. The Bible is filled with warnings. Filled with warnings about money and riches and wealth and accumulation of such. And we don't have time to address them all. We've got two scriptures here this morning that have to do with that. Let's read 1 Timothy 6, first of all, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. There's a whole lot here. First of all, temptation. Those who want to be rich, it leads to sin and away from God. Something else besides Jesus Christ becomes the focus of the life. And that's when you replace Jesus as your God and money or wealth becomes your God. It's a temptation if you want to be rich. It's a snare. The desire to be rich gets a hold of you. And it becomes difficult to get loose. You get trapped in this desire. You begin to think that money is the answer to everything. Money will solve your problems. Money will give you happiness. Money will do this. Money will do that. Your mind begins to think of nothing else. It becomes your passion, and all your affairs get ordered in that pursuit of becoming rich. It's a snare. You fall into many foolish and harmful desires. You know, when you do acquire some wealth, it opens up some doors, doesn't it? Sometimes for good, but it also gives opportunity for worldly pleasure, for things that before were out of your reach, but now you can get involved in those things. More stuff, bigger stuff, a richer lifestyle. You can run with another crowd. Sometimes it even has to do with pride, and you can show off to others how much you have or what you bought. Look what I got now. I got a bigger one. I got a better one. More than you. Many foolish and harmful desires. And it says that plunges men into ruin and destruction of all types. First of all, you can actually go into great debt Trying to make money, can't you? You 
invest in that scheme, boy, it's a can't miss, can't miss scheme. Yeah, let's put our money into that. End up losing it all. Sometimes this pursuit for riches ends up in crime, in jail time, because you like to cut the corners and forget the law just to make the money. It ends in broken homes because the focus becomes the money and not the wife or the husband or the children. They are made secondary. Can lead to many addictions and disease because of all the things you might get caught up in and the crowd that you run with. And of course, loss of the soul because money has replaced Jesus as your Lord. As it says, many have wandered away from the faith. Wandered away from the faith. Oh. An ultimate loss. Another Lord. And they wander through life with no secure hope. Just going from one thing to another. What can my money buy me now? I'll go over here. I'll, I'll buy this bigger house, this bigger boat, this bigger car, these five cars, these We'll world, travel the world, and et cetera, et cetera, and never satisfied. It's one thing after the other. And it says, pierce themselves with many griefs. Many griefs, because the important things in life are lost. As we mentioned already, family, sometimes health, Marriages are broken up and so forth. One of the saddest things when all of this happened, one of the saddest things when someone is caught up in this desire to be rich and this love of money, is that when any problems happen to them, any kind of problems come down the road, they think that more money will solve the problem. And it's just a vicious circle. It just becomes a terrible circle. That more money will get them out of their trouble. Warnings are everywhere. Let's look at verse 17 in that chapter. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now some people are rich and some Christians are rich. And they have been blessed by God with situations. Maybe it was an inheritance. Maybe it's a, a, a good job that they have gotten. And they work hard and they make money. There's nothing wrong with that. But you must be very careful when you get that money that it doesn't get a hold of you. Instruct those who are rich in the present world, first of all, not to be conceited. You know, that's the old thing. This is my money. Boy, I earned it. It's all mine. I can do whatever I want to with it. Look what my hands made, you know. Well, you know, again, God made you. God gave you your intelligence. God gave you your talent. God put you in that position. So the praise and the honor and the glory must first of all go to God. Yes, you applied yourself, but you applied yourself with what God gave you. So don't become conceited or full of pride. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. There it is. Don't fix your hope on those riches. 
It's, it's not going to bring you the happiness. It's not going to take you into life eternal. It's not going to get you everything in life that you really need. Maybe what you want, but not what you need. Money won't buy you Jesus Christ. Money won't buy you peace of mind. Money won't buy you forgiveness of sin. Money won't buy you a future for life eternal. It won't do it. But fix your hope on God, who, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. You see? There's where our hope lies, in God. And, you know, this is the thing that there, there's warning about because money is so powerful and money will get us things. But we really need to have that faith and remember it's God who blesses us with that ability and with that cash or money to keep our hope fixed on God. He's the one that supplies every good thing. And we praise God for that. Let's go to Luke 16. Jesus has another little take on this. He talks about little things and true riches. I like the way Jesus uses words, okay? And he makes us think about what he's saying. Makes us apply ourselves. Makes us pray and ask for wisdom. What are you talking about, Lord? Let's read this here, Luke 16, 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The very little thing. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the wealth of this world. He calls it a very little thing. That's his view of it. It should be our view of it. It is a very little thing compared to the true riches. It's important how you handle it, yes. Is it, do we need to have it? Yes, we do in today's world. But it's a very little thing compared to the soul, compared to salvation, compared to prayer, compared to a relationship with God, compared to forgiveness, compared to the fact you are sons of God, heirs of the kingdom, and on and on we can go, the spiritual blessing that we have in Christ in the heavenly places, money is a very little thing. But he expects us to be faithful in it, to use it wisely. 
he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, you see. So there's an expectation there that whatever God gives us, whether we're talking about what's in our bank account or our time or our intelligence or our skills, that we will use them wisely and be faithful in using them and not waste them on ourselves or on, you know, idle, uh, idle things. But we'll be faithful in them. It means to use it wisely, use it for good, use it to bless others, to be a good steward. Sometimes we think that being that good steward and being faithful in the little thing and the use of money means to be miserly. It doesn't mean that at all. Yeah, we have to be careful how we use it. But we're called to be generous, aren't we? In our help of people. In our being giving to God, blessing the kingdom, being a blessing to others. We're called to be generous. Not to be miserly and hoard our money and say, oh, well, i got to be careful, you know, and just, just keep it to myself. No, that's not what he's talking about. We need to see that wealth is a tool for accomplishing good. For accomplishing good. And when we see opportunity to do good and we have, it requires money and we have that, that's the time for us to jump in. To use it faithfully. It says here that if we are not faithful unrighteous in a very little thing, in other words, that's what he's saying, means you'll be also unrighteous in much. Okay? So if you can't, you know, maybe you uh, remember giving an allowance to children growing up. How did they use that money? Did they waste it? Did they lose it? Did they show that they were responsible? Were they faithful in a little bit? You gave them more, perhaps. So this is what God is talking about with us. He who is unrighteous in a very little thing, the world's riches, is unrighteous also in much. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, that which is little, who will entrust the true riches to you? Now there's an interesting thought. What's he talking about true riches? And in verse 12, if you've not been faithful in the use of what, that which is another's, and by that I think he's talking about what God has given you, that we are stewards now of what God has given us, who will entrust to you or give to you what is your own? I think he's talking about life eternal, the true riches, and that which is really, will really be our own will be given to us at the judgment when we pass on into this next life. So he's saying we need to be faithful in, in what God has given us here. In this very, very little, in money and so forth and so on, it's not really our own. God has given it all to us. If we're not faithful with it, he says, how can I entrust to you true riches? You can't take care of what I give you here. It's a sobering thought. And then he says, verse 13, 
No servant can serve two masters. And he goes on to talk about not serving God in wealth or as the Aramaic there is sometimes just transliterated mammon. It means wealth or money. You cannot do it. You cannot serve two masters and so many try to do it. They unwittingly try to do it. They don't realize they're doing it. But money becomes a real focus of their life and really competes with Jesus Christ for the throne. You know, when uh, Benjamin Franklin and U.S. Grant take over the throne of your heart, guess what happens? Jesus steps down. He won't fight. You put him there, he'll step down. So you have to be very, very careful what you do with the unrighteous men to be good stewards and understand what that means. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'm going to read that here in a little while. And then we'll close out. But first, I have a little story I want to read. And then I've had this for a while. I've seen this before. And I've often wondered, where can I use this? Because I think it's really good. And so we're going to use it this morning. This came from a website called Mikey's Funnies. And it's titled, The Rich Family in Church. So just listen carefully. I'll never forget Easter 1946. I was 14. My little sister Osie was 12. And my older sister Darlene 16. We lived at home with our mother. And the four of us knew what it was to do without many things. My father had died five years before, leaving mom with seven school kids to raise and no money. By 1946, my older sisters were married and my brothers had left home. A month before Easter, the pastor of our church announced that a special Easter offering would be taken to help a poor family. He asked everyone to save and give sacrificially. When we got home... We talked about what we could do. We decided to buy 50 pounds of potatoes and live on them for a month. This would allow us to save $20 of our grocery money for the offering. When we thought that if we kept our electric lights turned out as much as possible and didn't listen to the radio, we could save money on the electric bill. Darlene got as many house and yard cleaning jobs as possible, and both of us babysat for everyone we could. For 15 cents, we could buy enough cotton loops to make three potholders to sell for a dollar. We made $20 on potholders. That month was one of the best of our lives. Every day, we counted the money to see how much we had saved. At night, we'd sit in the dark and talk about how the poor family was going to enjoy having the money the church would give them. We had about 80 people in church, so figured that whatever amount of money we had to give, the offering would surely be 20 times that much. After all, 
Every Sunday, the minister had reminded everyone to save for the sacrificial offering. The day before Easter, Osi and I walked to the grocery store and got the manager to give us three crisp $20 bills and one $10 bill for all our change. We ran all the way home to show Mom and Darlene. We never had so much money before. That night, we were so excited we could hardly sleep. We didn't care that we wouldn't have new clothes for Easter. We had $70 for the sacrificial offering. We could hardly wait to get to church. On Sunday morning, rain was pouring. We didn't own an umbrella, and the church was over a mile from our home, but it didn't seem to matter how wet we got. Darlene had cardboard in her shoes to fill the holes. The cardboard came apart and her feet got wet. But we sat in church proudly. I heard some teenagers talking about the Smith girls having on their old dresses. I looked at them in their new clothes and I felt rich. When the sacrificial offering was taken, we were sitting on the second row from the front. Mom put in the $10 bill and each of us kids put in a 20. As we walked home after church, we sang all the way. At lunch, Mom had a surprise for us. She had bought a dozen eggs, and we had boiled Easter eggs with our fried potatoes. Late that afternoon, the minister drove up in his car. Mom went to the door, talked with him for a moment, and then came back with an envelope in her hand. We asked what it was, but she didn't say a word. She opened the envelope, and out fell a bunch of money. There were three crisp $20 bills, one ten, and 17 $1 bills. Mom put the money back in the envelope. We didn't talk, just sat and stared at the floor. We had gone from feeling like millionaires to feeling like poor white trash. We kids had such a happy life that we felt sorry for anyone who didn't have our mom and dad for parents and a house full of brothers and sisters and other kids visiting constantly. We thought it was fun to share silverware and see whether we got the spoon or fork that night. We had two knives that we passed around to whoever needed them. I knew we didn't have a lot of things that other people had, but I'd never thought we were poor. That Easter day, I found out we were. The minister had brought us the money for the poor family, so we must be poor. I didn't like being poor. I looked at my dress and worn-out shoes and felt so ashamed. I didn't even want to go back to church. Everyone there probably already knew we were poor. I thought about school. I was in the ninth grade and at the top of my class of over a hundred students. I wondered if the kids at school knew that we were poor. I decided that I could quit school once I finished the eighth grade. That was all the law required at the time. We sat in silence for a long time. Then it got dark and we went to bed. All that week we girls went to school and came home and no one talked much. Finally, on Saturday, Mom asked us what we wanted to do with the money. What did poor people do with the money? We didn't know. We'd never known we were poor. We didn't want to go to church on Sunday. 
Mom said we had to. Although it was a sunny day, we didn't talk on the way. Mom started to sing, but no one joined in, and she only sang one verse. At church, we had a missionary speaker. He talked about how churches in Africa made buildings out of sun-dried bricks, but they needed money to buy roofs. He said $100 would put a roof on a church. The minister said, can't we all sacrifice to help these poor people? We looked at each other and smiled for the first time in a week. Mom reached into her purse and pulled out the envelope. She passed it to Darlene. Darlene gave it to me. I handed it to Osi, and Osi put it in the offering. When the offering was counted, the minister announced that it was a little over $100. The missionary was excited. He hadn't expected such a large offering from our small church. He said, you must have some rich people in this church. Suddenly it struck us. We had given $87 of that little over $100. We were the rich family in the church. Hadn't the missionary said so? From that day on, I've never been poor again. I've always remembered how rich I am because I have Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Are you rich? Very serious question. Are you rich? If you need prayer this morning, we're here. Want to obey the gospel? We're here to help you. But we do ask the question are you rich? In the way the scriptures teach. Brother Jim, if you would. <coughs> 